from them from the early centuries after the New Testament was completed. And uh, this actually, Lord willing, will be our last lesson for now because, uh, of course, as you may know, we're planning on going to India here in early October. And I don't want to stop right in the middle of a lesson. So I want to finish this lesson today. And then, Lord willing, in February, we'll pick up again and we'll uh, continue on where we left off. This will be our last lesson about the Church Fathers. Also, we're still not done with the age of the Church Fathers. We're not out of that yet. Uh, it'll be a little bit until we're in the Middle Ages and in the medieval period. Uh, but still, uh, we want to finish up examining individual church fathers and certain things that they taught on different subjects. So that's what we want to finish here in uh, Lesson 18. If you remember last time, we looked at the subject of baptism. And we saw what early church fathers taught concerning baptism. We started, of course, talking about baptism in the New Testament. And how whenever we see baptism in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we see it was only professing believers in the Lord who were baptized. And the baptism wasn't simply a pouring of water over the head. It was a complete immersion in the water. And we also saw that there is no evidence whatsoever in Scripture that a person is regenerated in the waters of baptism. Rather, they are regenerated as a miracle of God's work, as a miracle work of the Holy Spirit, and they believe in Christ, and after that faith, and after that profession of faith, then they are baptized. The earliest writings that we have, after the New Testament was completed, we saw, like from the Didache and other writings, that, or at least two sources, that they agreed with you. Disciples were baptized in the water, and they were immersed in the water. And then, as we moved on in history, we saw that there were different superstitions and misunderstandings that began to be attached to baptism. And we saw, for example, that some started to teach the concept of baptismal regeneration. And we also saw that baptism became a rite that accomplished something in and of itself. And that was a problem. And people began to look at baptism in a very superstitious way. And, for example, some people we talked about would hold off and be baptized right before their death because their view was is that you were a believer, but all your sins would be washed away at baptism. And so you wanted to wait till the end of your life. And then also we saw that infant baptism started to be practiced because there was the view that, hey, infant's going to die and its sins aren't washed away, we have to baptize infants. And we saw that this began to spread, and so forth. Now, <coughs> let me also mention that although we're going to be done talking about baptism now, we're going to be talking about baptism more and more as we go on in church history, because we're going to see there were different Anabaptist groups that existed, and eventually when the Reformation comes along, the Anabaptist movement would spread even more, and uh, we're also going to see that many gave their lives for believing that uh, only believers should be baptized and practicing it in that way. So we'll see that as time goes on. But we wanted to lay a foundation in history by seeing what the early church fathers taught on this subject. And eventually how you know, some corruption came in concerning the ordinance of baptism. Now, what we want to do today is just look at one more subject, and that is the teaching of the church fathers concerning their view of Scripture. And we did talk about this already. We saw many times that the early church fathers talked about 
the inspiration and authority of Scripture. We already went through some of those quotes. And I just want to go finish this lesson on teaching of the, of the church fathers by giving you some more of those quotations so you can see what their view was of Scripture. And I'm sorry this morning here, I got these, these uh, things in my mouth, so I think I've affected my talk a little bit. First time I'm doing it since I got these in, so maybe I'll take them out next time, but I don't know if you can notice, but I can notice it in myself. So anyway, so we're going to look at some of these quotations from the church fathers concerning Scripture. Now, these names I mentioned should sound familiar to you if you've been with us because we've examined many of these men already. But first of all, Clement of Alexandria said that not one jot or tittle could disappear because the mouth of the Lord had spoken it. Had spoken it all. So we just see how it was his view that, yes, all of Scripture was given by inspiration of God. Gregory of Nazianzus said this, Even the smallest lines in the Scripture are due to the minute care of the Holy Spirit, so that we must pay careful attention to every slightest shade of meaning. So as we saw that it wasn't just parts of Scripture that were inspired. Uh, it was all of Scripture that was inspired. And then Augustine said this, Let us give in and yield our assent to the authority of the Holy Scripture, which knows not how either to be deceived or to deceive. Believe me, whatever there is in these scriptures, it is lofty and divine. There is in them altogether truth and a system of teaching most suited to refresh and renew minds, and clearly so ordered in measure that as that there is no one but may draw thence what is enough for himself, if only he approach to draw with devotion and piety. So he's making it clear, yes, scripture is God-breathed, scripture is inspired, scripture is authoritative, and scripture is also sufficient for all that we need to know in this life concerning our faith, concerning life after death, concerning who God is, concerning salvation, and nothing needs to be added to it. John Chrysostom said this, It is a great thing, this reading of the scriptures, for it is not possible, I say, not possible ever to exhaust the mind of the scripture. It is a well which has no bottom. And again, why is that so important? Well, because again, he's affirming that Scripture is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient for all that we need to know. That doesn't mean that we can't read good books. That doesn't mean we can't listen to sermons and get good teaching. Uh, but it does mean that Scripture is all that we need concerning what we should know concerning who God is, salvation, and what is absolutely essential for our salvation. Athanasius said this, they, that is the scriptures, were spoken and written by God through men who spoke of God. These, the Old and the New Testament, are the fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take aught from these. And even we see that principle in scripture. Scripture itself testifies that it is God's word breathed out and that nothing is to be added and nothing is to be taken away. And Athanasius affirms that as well. Now let's also give a quote from Origen. Now if you remember, Origen had a lot of doctrinal and theological problems. But still, we're 
reviewing history here, and he was an important figure. So let's just read what he said. Shall we say that the evangelist, this is speaking of Mark chapter 10, verse 50. Shall we say that the evangelist wrote without any thought when he related the man's casting away his garment and leaping and coming to Jesus? And shall we dare to say that these things were inserted in the Gospels in vain? For my part, I believe that not one jot or tittle of the divine instruction is in vain. We are never to say that there is anything impertinent or superfluous in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit, though to some they may seem obscure. But we are to turn the eyes of our mind to him who commanded these things to be written and seek of him the interpretation of them. The sacred scriptures come from the fullness of the Spirit, so that there is nothing in the prophets or the law or the gospels or the apostles which descends not from the fullness of the divine majesty. So again, origin even affirms the same thing that we believe about scripture and what scripture says about itself. And then Jerome, you see how, carried away by my love of the scriptures, I have exceeded the limits of a letter, yet have not fully accomplished my, ob my, object, my object. We have heard only what it is that we ought to know and to desire, so that we too may be able to say with the psalmist, my soul breaketh out for the very fervent desire that it hath always unto thy judgments. Give ear for a moment that I may tell you how you are to walk in the Holy Scriptures. All that we read in the divine books, while glistening and shining without, is yet far sweeter within. And then finally, Irenaeus said, By our Lord Jesus Christ, give every reader of this book to know thee and to be strengthened in thee. This is affirming again that we look to Scripture, and Scripture is used by God to strengthen us in the faith. So, so many of the fundamental truths that we know about Scripture, it being God's breathed outward, it being our authority, and it being sufficient for all that we need to know, it being used by God to strengthen us in the faith. Exactly what Scripture says about itself, the early church fathers also maintained. And I got this from uh, Rene Pichet's book, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture, and what's interesting is, he goes throughout church history, talks about the Reformers, and many others, even up to our modern day, that affirm these teachings concerning the Bible itself. In other words, this was the view of Scripture all throughout church history by Christians. And But, of course, for our subject, if you're studying the Church Fathers, this was the view of all of the Church Fathers, except for one man who was condemned by a council for his false teaching. Let me just read you this quote from Pache. He says this, Let us conclude the enumeration at this point. According to Gossip, except for a man named Theodore of, of Mopsitia, who was condemned by the Fifth Universal Council at Constantinople in 553, besides that, that man, not one authority could be cited throughout all the first eight centuries of Christianity who failed to acknowledge the full inspiration of the scriptures, except, of course, to the heretical enemies of the Christian faith. So, one of the fundamental foundational doctrines of the faith was affirmed by these church fathers. And then, I want to quote to you from Nick Meenan in his church history concerning the Apostolic Fathers, that's the first 50 years after the New Testament was completed. He said this, In the age of the Apostolic Fathers, 
the church had an extremely narrow, conservative, traditional attitude towards doctrine. So this was their view of scripture, and this was their view concerning the doctrine. That's quite interesting because when you think of our modern day, you think of what we oftentimes call, you know, the, the evangelicalist churches, right? There's, I mean, there's not a seriousness when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to theology. And there's not a seriousness of viewing scripture as our authority and as the revelation given by God that is sufficient for our faith. And so when we consider the church today, this is one reason why looking at these church fathers and what their view of scripture was, this is another reason why it is so important. Any comments or questions? Yes, Howard. Yeah, because it, it's interesting. You know, if you look at most most uh, creeds and confessions, you know, they go on their websites and churches, and they affirm, they'll, they'll say on their website on the confession of faith or you know, standards of the church, yeah, we believe that all the Bible is inspirational. But in practice, at the very least, in practice, they deny it. Then a lot of times they'll they'll have that written down there, but then they're constantly, you know, constantly going against scripture with no justification whatsoever, no possible way to justify it by scripture or anything. And the other thing I just wanted to say is in this day and age too, especially the elements of the Pentecostal and Charismatic and Catholic Church, because it's all a form of mysticism, and they think there's some kind of ongoing prophecy, or some ongoing truth coming on. And they misappropriate that scriptures that say, you know, well, the prophets spoke in that, not realizing, well, yeah, but all the scriptures, all the teachings of the then apostles and those writing them hadn't been completed yet. That's what I believe, that's what they were speaking. Thank you. 
the presence, the whatever, right? It's not saying the sufficiency of Scripture. That's what he says he uses to build the church. That's what he says, how he draws us, how we, how we get to know him more and more and more. But I want to piggyback this on the bucket when we're talking the Gospel of Thomas and those other so-called scriptures, you know, Gnosticism of form or another. What those other books? Not only were they condemned as heresy and falsehood when they first came out, and that's proven, all of them just grossly contradict clear teaching in Scripture. They're, they're wild. They're just out of... There's, there's no possible way. You know, when you read them, like when we know God, right? When we have the Holy Spirit in you, you just read them. And if you've read the Bible first and got acquainted with it, right, then you start to recognize, as I, you know, the Spirit and, and the voice of the Scripture. And you just know, that's not Jesus. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God. It, it, people just need to ignore all that stuff, right? Because they're always wanting to, that's what it is, more. i got to ask, these, this ain't fulfilling me. Well, there could be reasons why it's not fulfilling you. <laughs> And when it comes to those things, too, and I think a lot of people, if you know history, like you're talking about, kind of like what you're saying, well, you know the Gospel of Thomas was a Gnostic book. Yep. So if you know about who the Gnostics were, and you know how the church dealt with the Gnostics, and we studied the Gnostics in here a little bit, it was a, a Gnostic document. Now, if a pastor, for example, or someone who's teaching, reads the Gospel of Thomas to understand what the Gnostics were teaching, that we understand. But if you're saying you need to read the Gospel of Thomas for spiritual edification, you know, that's where the problem is. why, again, as we go through church history, see oftentimes the Bible uh, was, it, it was involved Reformation where it was always a call back to Scripture, a call back to Scripture, a call back to Scripture. And back to the sufficiency of Scripture and the writings that would come out of these revivals and out of the Reformation era and the Puritan era. I mean, it's always a high regard for Scripture and going back to Scripture. And uh, that's, that's the same, uh, the same should be true of us as well. So now finishing up here on lesson 18, let me just stop now and just uh, tell you why um, what we've gone through today and also what we've gone through in our church history series so far is so important. Just some practical things. Uh, number one, and then 
because then, I guess, like I said, we'll be done with church history, Lord willing, until February. Um, when we see that the Bible itself teaches us, what, what the Bible teaches us about uh, the early church's view concerning the nature of Scripture and about apostolic doctrine, and then when we see the first generation after the apostles continue in the same way, we should be encouraged to continue to be faithful in these areas as well. Um, I had a friend of mine from India before. He told me this statement. He said, when you go to the West, he's trying to explain it to me his own experience. He went to Europe and to America and so forth. He said, it opens up your mind. Uh, because you know, he was taught to, to, to think a certain way, and that was it. And I could also say to him, well, it can be the same, though, with, you know, as a Westerner, when you go to another place, too, it opens up your mind. Uh, not to... Uh, set aside scripture, but you learn from other believers that, you know, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not seeing some things because of the way I grew up, and I'm just not seeing certain things in the scripture. The same is true of history. Uh, you can learn from those who went before you, right? They can help you to see certain things in scripture, maybe that you haven't seen before. Uh, so scripture can also be used to open up your mind. When you just see things in your modern day, it limits you at times to be able to uh, learn other things from Scripture. Let me give to you some uh, Scripture just to show you how knowing history is an important principle in finding Scripture. Job chapter 8, and I'm going to read to you, if you want to turn your Bibles with me, then we're going to look at some different passages. Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. And again, this is one of Job's friends here, Bildad. But he, he makes a true statement that we would all agree with. And here's what he said, verses 8 through 10 of Job chapter 8. For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon the earth are, as a, are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee in utter words out of their heart? So you see a biblical principle there of going back to previous generations to learn from those who went before you. Uh, because we have such a short life, there are many things that we don't know. <coughs> but when we go to previous generations, there are so many things that we can know. And that is also true of church history. There are so many things that we can learn that maybe we are limited to because of a lack of teaching on those subjects in our own day. Then look at Psalm 77. Psalm 77, and verse number 5. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. Good testimony. We say that about ourselves. Have I considered the ancient times from before? Are there principles that I can learn that are contained, of course, in the Bible, and other godly people that are not in Scripture, but I can read about them and learn from them as well. Psalm 88, verse 12. Turn there. Psalm 88, verse 12. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? See, notice, when we as a people forget our past, or don't know our past, don't know our spiritual heritage, the Scriptures don't present that as a good thing. It's not a good thing, because it limits us in so many ways. 
And then finally, one more Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number 7. I'll just read this for you here. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show you. Thy elders, and they will tell thee. Very important again. And I want to explain to you, just maybe give you some examples of why this is so important for us, especially our young people. I guess millennials, Gen Zers, the generation coming up in our own children that we're raising. This is so important because for our children who are growing up in the modern secular society, if they are just growing up in a modern day box and they think that the way things are now are the way things maybe they're kind of like they've always been this way, and they don't know what has gone before them, they're not going to understand their context. But if they understand their context and their place in history, that keeps them from being deceived by modern-day deceptions that prey on people who don't know history or who just have heard rewritten history. Let me just give you an example why this is so important. There was this uh, reality show and uh, a supposed Christian family on it, but not, not, not the Duggars. Have you ever heard of the Duggars 19 and County? Okay. So that one, this is something different. This was a different reality show. And um, it was a, a supposed Christian family. And they had a bunch of kids and whatnot. And uh, I, I don't know if the whole thing was a big scam or if it was a real show. And I, I don't know. But anyone who would see that can tell clearly what the message is of the reality show. And that is, you fundamentalist Christians, you're in the secular world now. You're in the modern age. Stop raising your children this way and, and just give on it. Because as the show would go on, one kid would go astray. Then the next kid would go astray. Then the next kid would go astray. And eventually, I think the married couple ended up divorcing. And it just shows like a complete collapse of a Christian family to secular humanism. Well, in this reality show, the oldest boy goes off with his, his girlfriend or whatever. And one of the things that the girlfriend, she, she just, she's not, she's having trouble getting along with this guy's Christian family. And she writes on social media, I have a problem with Christian fundamentalists, yada, yada. So what a lot of our young people are getting, a picture that there's two kinds of Christians. There's the regular Christians, you know, who are loving and, you know, they're kind of like common, normal, everyday people. And then there's the fundamentalist Christians. And the fundamentalist Christians are those serious, grouchy people who just don't fit in with society anymore. And eventually, they're just going to collapse and go away anyway. You know, that's kind of the picture that is being presented. Well, anyone who knows history knows that's completely nonsense. Uh, the early church fathers here and Christians throughout history were what you would call fundamentalists. Yeah. In that, they agreed that the scripture is our authority, the scripture is breathed out by God, the scripture is sufficient, and we are to believe the gospel, we are to obey its teaching, the scripture's teachings, this is going to affect every area of life. Anyone who says they're a Christian who doesn't believe the scripture is the word of God, the scripture is not their authority, aren't real Christians at all. And if young people who grow up and who know their church history know that's the case, so when they hear nonsense like I've just presented to you, they would laugh at that and know, ah, that's not exactly accurate. But for someone who's raised in a Christian home, maybe they're not really converted, and they're just in a modern-day box, I can see how they would be deceived by that, and how they could use that as an excuse for rejecting the faith. 
oh, I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian home, and yeah, well, they're not really Christians anyway. They're not really living, and, but they don't have that historical background. You see why this is important? Knowing our past. Yes. Well, I was just going to say, we really can. We see the, the judgment of God on our own nation through this very principle, these, these principles you're talking about. What are they trying to do? They're trying to destroy what? Our history. They're trying to eliminate it. They're getting rid of Andrew Jackson. They're getting rid of all of these things that, that they perceive as unholy and ungodly, and yet they're the ones that are being unholy and ungodly by doing away with the very history of our own nation, which is going to bring it to its demise. Again, in scriptures, you've read several of them. There are several of them in there where God warns them specifically, do not do that. And uh, it's, 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 it's amazing to watch God's word and the principles in God's word unfold before our eyes. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like you said, that's why it's important that these young, these young children are brought up and taught, taught those things. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you're familiar, I don't want to jump ahead and now, but just, just to mention, you know, in the 1800s, we had uh, liberal theology became popular, and that really grew in the early 1900s, where people wanted to call themselves Christians, but they didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, didn't believe in his resurrection, didn't believe in miracles, and so forth. Yes, well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, in, response, <laughs> in response to that, you had the fundamentals came out that book, and it, it affirmed the fundamentals of the faith, that we believe the fundamentals of the faith. And so, they were described as the fundamentalists. And in the early 1900s, we would say, yeah, all they were doing was affirming what all Christians before them affirmed, and affirming exactly what the Bible said. Nowadays, I understand that that term is used in a different way. I, the term is still a good term if you define what you're talking about. You're saying, I, I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, some who are fundamentalists today, I think, have added a lot of traditions that aren't in Scripture, and a, a lot of things that just you know aren't, aren't biblical at all. And the world uses fundamentalism, the term fundamentalist, in a completely different way. Basically, if you're just a Christian and take the Bible seriously, you're a fundamentalist, and you're misrepresenting and so forth. But again, if you know your history and you know your context, you can see through all of that propaganda that's uh, talked about through so that. Now. Let me also mention Psalm 78. If you turn there, Psalm 78. And let's just read, read verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. <coughs> so we see the responsibility here of passing on the faith to the next generation. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. 
Now notice a few things there. We see the faith passing on from one generation to the next. Fathers to their children, and then those children to their children. You see that passing on. What's the purpose? So that they would put their faith in God, their hope would be in God, and so that they would obey his commandments. So you see that there. Also you notice that our children are called their children. That is, our fathers from the past, our spiritual fathers. Our children are their children in the sense that if our children are believers, we're in the same spiritual family. So we see that as well. And then, if we pass on the faith from one generation to the next, that generation is guarded from apostasy. Remember that generation, that first generation that left Egypt, that's mentioned here in verse number 8? For the most part, they were apostate. For the most part, they rejected God. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that their faith wasn't real, and they turned away from God. In the same way, in our context, if our faith passes on from one generation to the next, it guards them from the apostasy of our secular age. You see what I mean? So again, you see these principles, and they're so very important. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let's look at verses uh, 21 and 22. Again, just simple, but you just see this principle all throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 24, verses 21 and 22. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. Now notice that principle. Leave this to the fort. And this law was to go from one generation to the next to the next. And they were always to remember their history, what had happened in the land of Egypt. And again, you see that over and over again. I'm not going to read it for you, but Judges chapter 11, verses 12 and 28, there's even going to be a battle. And the nation that was coming against Israel said, because you stole our land. And the judge in Israel said, no, and he gave the history, this is what really happened. And this is what God did. So again, they would know their history, they would know their context, and then they would know how to act and do what was right. So that's the first practical point. When we see these things in Scripture, we understand how we are to think and what we are to do. And that's one reason why this church history is very important. Okay, number two. What we learned so far in history, we see that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We've seen many different doctrinal controversies. The Trinity, Christological controversies, uh, we saw the debate on grace and man's will. And when we see that a lot of the things that we deal with now aren't new things. These things were dealt with in the past already. And we stand on their shoulders of these people who took the time to study, to debate, to learn, and to proclaim these things. And it really helps us a lot today. We have to give them credit for being willing to suffer and die for the faith and also to fight for sound doctrine. And we also should follow their example. A third practical point. Uh, we always will see a weakness in God's people throughout history. The church is always in a spiritual battle. It is a false understanding that says that the church should be perfect. The church will never be perfect in this life. The true church is made up of people who are in an ongoing battle between the spirit and the flesh according to the book of Romans. The spirit fights against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. 
And that's always, always important to remember. Let me tell you something. When I had someone challenge me who was an agnostic who said, if, as the New Testament says, every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, how can you Christians disagree on stuff? How can you disagree on certain teachings? How can you disagree on certain practical things? And it's amazing, oftentimes, agnostics, it's, it's like they, when they try to get into a theological debate, they, they just don't know much. They'll take a, a teaching in Scripture, and they won't take Scripture as a whole. The Bible never once, the Bible does teach that the Holy Spirit indwells believers, but the Bible never teaches that when a person is converted, that all of a sudden he reaches a glorified state instantly. Never does the Bible teach that. Uh, he's in an ongoing battle with the flesh and the spirit. And so therefore you can have it in the New Testament itself. Paul and Barnabas disagreeing over John Mark, whether to take him with or not. You can have Paul has to rebuke Peter publicly. You can have a quarrel taking place in the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6. The scripture never presents us with, now that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that we're going to agree on every single thing we see in the And this is what we see throughout church history, and that shouldn't bother us. See, yes, this is what we see in the New Testament, and the church is never going to be in full unity until we are in a glorified state. That's always important for us to remember. This has been the case and will always be the case in this life until we reach glorification. And of course, there will always be a false among the true. There will always be heretics and apostates amongst God's people. That should never shake us. And then finally, the last practical point. We have seen that theological orthodoxy amongst the fathers in the earliest centuries is a wonderful thing to see, especially that first 50 years or so after the New Testament was completed. Uh, but we also see that eventually different errors creep in that we must steer clear of. We saw this with monasticism and Christian asceticism. This whole idea that uh, the, flesh, the spirit is good but the flesh is bad. That came from sources outside of the New Testament. And that affected a lot of people's thinking on a lot of things. Superstitions regarding water baptism that we already talked about. And really a complete change of church offices where before it was a group of pastors that led each church and then eventually it was a bishop that led each church with the pastors under him and eventually a bishop would uh, lead certain churches in an area and the, the elders of the presbyters became priests and then eventually of course in the west you're going to have the one bishop who tries to lead all churches the bishop of Rome and so but again, that, the East would separate eventually from the West, which we'll look at. But, but you see this idea that happens with church offices that just isn't biblical. And then, of course, allegorical interpretation. So we saw these errors that creep in. And it's important for us that when we see this, to remember what believers would always do through those centuries. And that was go back to Scripture, go back to Scripture, go back to Scripture. And, and again, the cry of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, right? Always reforming, keep reforming. In your generation, keep going back. So this finishes up Lesson 18. I hope this has been helpful as we've studied uh, history up to this point. I, it's Lesson 18, but I think we've, we've probably had about 40 sessions, maybe even 50. So, And again, we're still in the age of the Church Fathers. We're still in that first 500 years. So Lord willing, we come back in the wintertime. We'll continue and we'll finish up the, the age of the Church Fathers and then uh, move along in history. Any last questions or comments? Yeah, I was... You know, so interesting. You were the 
settle through that, you know, by looking at, you know, once it's properly, you know, like went against, spoke against the ears and wrote against the ears and that, and you see how they, and the real good ones bought in scripture and how they bought it in. And, and then you see people even greater throughout the ages, it wasn't, you know, totally settled, then it comes up again. And then even more scripture, you see, you know, you see the fundamental true doctrine is taking more and more and more shape. And, you know, that's why it's so good to look back and remember that throughout the whole church age. There are all these men that God used that gifted, you know, the gift of the church to help protect his word and protect his people from error. And to always remember that, you know, we get attacked all the time. We've had it happen in this church. We get attacked all the time. Oh, you guys go on back to the church fathers, go on back to the reformers, go on back. Well, yes, you just see even in scripture several times. You say, yeah, go back to what was before. Go back, <laughs> go ask the elders, go ask, well, you know, I can't go talk to Jonathan Edwards in person, but I can write his, I can read his writings. You know, I can't go talk to, you know, uh, Trinity, uh, Athanasius. Athanasius. But I can write, I can read what he wrote about it. Yeah. You know, and it's, 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 it's just so good in that way. We're not just sitting here, you know, on this island alone, like, all right, we're the first ones who have the word of God, and uh, how do we figure this out? You know, it's just, it's good. You may read it yourself, but to go back and just see that so these things have been brought up before, and sometimes the same questions and it, that, we, that we deal with at times come in, they can just help get cleared up and everything if you just take the time and the understanding that there's always been these controversies and there's always been this teaching, there's always been men that have defended and been apologists for the church and the women for that. And then there are errors. Yeah. So. We've got a newborn here. Sounds like, sounds like they agree. <laughs> Plus to raise before you make comments. Either. <laughs> I need to uh, Anything else? All right. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this time again as we learn some history and also just close this time out by remembering some practical reasons to study and know these things. And we pray now that you might use this for your glory and for the good of your church here. And we want to also just praise you for what you have done and, of course, what you will do. May you be glorified through it all, we pray. We pray in the name of Christ.